Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Voxology Podcast. We are located at the corner of Awesome and Relevant <laughs> Avenue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, we're actually located at VoxologyPodcast.com. Where you can find our back catalog we pictures. Seen that awesome and relevant.com was available. <laughs> that may have been better. So, anyway, hello. My name's Mike. Uh, this is my friend Tim. Hi. Tim is in California. I am in Tennessee. Between the two of us, we represent really the, uh, the, the d- d- two entirely different set of political ideologies represented by our state leaderships. So uh, we figure we got it covered. Well, I want to thank some folks. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit, and um, and we got guess what? This I don't know that this has ever happened. We had two people by the name of Quinn join the Patreon team this week. Oh, we had two Quins. So if your name is Quinn, I just want to give a huge shout out. First, it's a great name. Secondly, thank you to the two Quins. That have joined the Patreon team this week. And then we have a, a, a people who give on a different platform called tithe.ly. We call it Tithely. You can find out more about this from our website. But uh, I want to thank Tim and Hillary and Amanda and Kristen. Um, we could not do this without you all and uh, or y'all. And y'all. somebody used the somebody used all y'all the other day, and I was like, there it is. That encompasses every single person in the history of the world. Every Every group called you all is included in all y'all. Yeah. So solid work, solid work. Instead of saying the long word, everyone, you just say all (laughs) y'all. That's right. And you got it. I have in my little hand um, an email that was in our, the Vox junk folder. And I've never thought we had one of those. I didn't even know we did, but I was like, oh. There were some emails in there from the Vox uh, junk folder. And so this was one that came in. Um, uh, let's see, several weeks ago, maybe a month ago, but had some interesting thoughts on the Unity series before we got it started. So this is somebody who said, um, I am a disenfranchised former Southern Baptist minister. And he thinks the Unity Convo is super important, and it's one of his hobby horses. So we had a whole bunch of questions and points, and they're really, really good. The first one is, what does it mean when we say that Jesus is the center of a centered church? What does that mean when we say Jesus is the center when we're talking about centered sets? Take Christmas, for example. For some folks, Jesus being the center means demanding that everyone say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. Well, others, for others, it means having an open and gracious attitude to happy holiday folks, right? So, so some people are going to hear Jesus is the center language as if Jesus is the center of culture or Jesus should be the center of, um, of uh, society. Hmm. And, um, and so I think that's great. How do we define which understanding of Jesus correctly identifies him as the center? So great question number one. To use your soccer analogy, it seems to me that naming Jesus as the center is a bit like sending out an email telling people that you're going to kick around the soccer ball at 3 p.m. on Saturday. In this case, the ball is separated from the game, meaning that we can all show up and argue about how or what to play with a soccer ball. 
When we argue that Jesus is the center, we run the risk of separating him from the narrative that makes that statement meaningful. Hmm. In the soccer analogy, when we center on the game of soccer, we're centering on the practice or story that is very definitive rules and boundaries. True. That's the question we're going to answer today. The whole podcast will go around, what does it mean to say Jesus is the center? Regarding some of the emails you've referenced, I'm noticing that the tendency is to boil things down to individuals. I think we need to be gracious to individuals with whom we disagree. At the same time, I think we need, I, I, excuse me, I think we also need to think about this on a corporate level. Here the question becomes, what, how do we respond to churches or denominations who are encouraging some of the false teaching and permitting some of the horrible behavior? Um, is there a difference when it comes to the unity conversation when dealing with things on a corporate versus an individual level? That's fascinating. I'm also noticing, next point, that most often we talk about church unity within within white evangelicalism. What do, you know, and, and there the focus is on what do we do with white evangelicals with whom we disagree? Yet, what about unity with other strands of faith? Why not face the African-American church? rather than the white evangelicals when we talk about unity. How does that change the discussion? Indeed, how does that question inform our stance towards churches that espouse white Christian nationalism? Just a few thoughts, looking forward to how the conversation unfolds. Boom. Boom. Those are great thoughts. So well done. We, we, it is well known in podcasting circles that the Voxology podcast has the most intelligent audience. Um, not at all due to its hosts, but rather simply to the fact that voxology is a fancy word and fancy. that it attracts <laughs> fancy people. Yeah. Now, today, Timothy. At the corner of awesome and relevant. At the corner of awesome and relevant, right? At Awesome God Avenue and Relevant Magazine Circle. There you go. Is where we are found and, and located. Um, today, my friend... We want to talk, as we continue to talk about the whole bounded set, fuzzy set, center set, and take that idea uh, um, and, and theory and apply it to now church life, channeling Mark Baker, who is channeling Paul Hybert, who is probably channeling somebody else, and maybe channeling is a horrible word to use in a Christian context, but Apparently, you I watched our Facebook message, though, that um, you've been mispronouncing Mr. Paul's last name. Oh no, is it oh, Hebert? Yeah. You got called out. You got did called out hard. Dang, man. That's why I'm trying I avoid to find Facebook. it right now, but I can't. But yes, the emphasis is on the E, not the I, if I remember the comment correctly. How do they know? Are they friends? Because one of, of them was actually, I think I'm trying to find it, said that they were a descendant or something of his. Well, I guess that would give them authority to make that decision. Yeah. I will submit. And what I meant to say is Paul Hebert. That's right. Is that how you say it? Uh, I, um, I take that rebuke. And he, here's what's going to happen, oh, I found listener. It. Okay, the correct let's hear German it. ethnic pronunciation of Paul Hebert's name, Mike Erie, is to put the emphasis on the E and not the I in Hebert. I assume that's what they're saying. Mm. He says that listening to you mispronounce it sounds like fingernails on a chalkboard. Well, first of all, listener. Um, <laughs> Other than that, keep up the good work with a smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I accept that rebuke 
and fingernails on a chalkboard is awful. So Hebert <laughs> it is. I will never make that mistake again, dear listener. Thank you for the rebuke. All right, channeling Baker and Hebert. Here we go, baby. What is it that defines the center? Because our emailer raises a very, very good point, right? What Jesus are we talking about? The Christian nationalist Jesus, the militaristic Jesus, the Old Testament God, Yahweh, channeled through Jesus. I mean, what are the we talking Jesus, about, Tim? The my, buddy Jesus from Dogma. My buddy Jesus from Dogma, <laughs> yes, which you should never, you you all should not watch, ever. Um, I'll show you in the mood for some very interesting conversation afterward. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, because we would say, and I think most, quote, Christian churches would say, um, that the center of our church experience is the God revealed by Jesus Christ. The issue, even within the major streams, whether it's Wesleyan or Anabaptist or Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox, and Protestant really is an unhelpful category, because, um, you know, there are so many forms there. But like, what Jesus are we talking about? Because different, different groups emphasize different elements of Jesus. And it has been remarked uh, in scholarship that, you know, whenever there's a, a, an intellectual quest for the historical Jesus, whatever Jesus has found usually resembles the person doing the questing. Yeah, and we talked about that a little bit with the Talladega Knights. The emphasis is on the E, Teladiga night. Yes, exactly. Thank uh, you. With, with him choosing to pray to baby Jesus. They're figuring out which Jesus they wanted yeah. to pray to at the table. Yeah, yeah. I'd like a Jesus who's ready to party, but also is ready for a formal occasion. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> so, so we have to, one of the main jobs of a center-focused church is to continually clarify and reorient towards the center and um, now this conversation obviously assumes that we can know something about Jesus. Um, and, and so that opens up the Bible to us. That also assumes that the Gospels are you know, historically reliable portraits of Jesus. And all of mm -hmm. that would be questioned in certain contexts. Um, without having to defend all of that, I just want to go into, okay, here are seven things. And seven is the number of perfection. So, of course, seven is going to be applied to Jesus. <laughs> Right. Here are seven clarifications. If somebody asked me, which no one did, um, I can dear ask listener, you Tim, would you ask me? Yeah. What was it again? <laughs> uh, dear listener, if if we were to be asked, okay, so what? What? Who? Who is Jesus? What? When we say Jesus is the center, what are we getting at? Here's what I'm getting at. All right. Seven things two of which will be relatively involved. Some of these will be obvious, but the, the goal here is to clarify the center as much as possible. So what I did is I flipped through all the gospels and just said, okay, what's, what's talked about most? What mm. do you see most there? The, and the number one thing you see most there in the gospels is that Jesus is Jewish. Wait. And I know that's a shocker, but if you rip Jesus out of his Jewish context, you have instantly deformed, a deformed view of, of the God revealed in Jesus. He's not a Nash villain. He's not, he's not, he's not a villain at all, no. Tim. Um, and it's villain. Thank you very much. The Nash emphasis is on the villain. Ill. Yeah. License to ill is what I'm saying. <laughs> now, 
Jesus is Jewish. Now, I know this is so obvious, but it's so not ever recognized that Jesus, I mean, here, here, here's how Matthew begins. All right. This is the origin story of Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, son of Abraham. Well, immediately, son of David and son of Abraham <laughs> take right. you, force you back into the Jewish story. Or in Mark, the be this is the beginning or genesis of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. And instantly, you're back there. Romans begins with this, with this lineage about Jesus being the son of David and why that matters. And I mean, even, even John's sort of prologue, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. I mean, that's all got Jewish and Hellenistic Jewish background. Yeah. So, the, so the idea, and I know this is obvious, but no one practices this or takes this seriously. That Jesus is Jewish. He's not American. He's not talking about American concerns. He's not talking about American definitions of things. He is talking to Israel, about Israel, answering Israel questions almost everywhere he's at. And only secondarily, if then, is he addressing us as individuals thousands of years later. Yeah. So, I mean, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, was not the Old Testament for Jesus. It was beautiful. Jesus quotes it authoritatively. He says he's come to fulfill it and reveal its true meaning. He holds it up as the word of God. Torah is light and life. I mean, he, he has a high, high view of this thing. And when Christians just simply say, well, you don't need that to follow Jesus, you're, you've guaranteed from the beginning um, to to misrepresent the Jesus you're going to end up with, yeah, right. Jesus didn't speak English. Jesus wasn't white. Jesus didn't live in a democracy. Jesus wasn't a consumeristic. Jesus was a collectivist, right? I mean, the the whole worldview, his whole thought and imaginative world was based in the symbolic universe of the Hebrew Scriptures. Yeah. So the minute the minute you encounter a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a disciple or walking on water you're you just can't pull that straight out onto a flannel graph and think that that's giving you an accurate picture of who jesus is right so the ministry of john the baptist is framed in old testament terms his temptation in the wilderness is framed in old testament terms jesus's baptism his personal baptism framed in old testament terms the calling of the 12 is is framed in old testament terms his ministry is all about dealing with the trajectory that Israel is on and inviting them into a new posture. His transfiguration is all Old Testament stuff. The, the triumphal entry, his cursing of the temple, fig tree, uh, the cursing of the fig tree that boundaries that um, event in the temple, all of that is Jewish. You just can't, the Last Supper, the, the you know discussions about divorce, lust, I mean, all of that is Jewish. And, um, and, you, and, and I'm saying this to myself, the reason I'm so emphatic about it is because when I learned this one simple thing, a whole new world opened up. And it's not the only thing that's true about Jesus, but it's where we start, Yeah. right? Any, any picture of Jesus at the center has to, has to locate him within a first century, second temple Judaism with a primary emphasis in the Galilee region and a, a mission, death, and, and renewal movement that it heads down into uh, Judea to, re to call out the temple and to invite people into a new thing that God is doing. So I just can't emphasize 
it enough when Jesus Jesus's parables all begin with the fact that he's talking to Jewish people about Israel concerning Jewish questions his aphorisms would have made sense to the original audience an aphorism is just a short pithy statement like the first will be last the last will be first that's an aphorism Um, the the way he thought of himself um, and conceived of his vocation is entirely in Jewish terms. The way he understood Israel was entirely in Jewish terms. The way he understood law, it was in Jewish terms. His main message was a Jewish message. I mean, all of it. You just... Now, that doesn't mean... I'm not saying it doesn't have relevance. Of course it has relevance, right? We wouldn't be here if it didn't. But when we talk about clarifying the center, as our emailer brought up, well, I mean, you can bring a soccer ball, uh, but that doesn't mean you're going to play soccer because you can play right. basketball with a soccer ball, whatever. No, you got to say you're playing soccer. So what are we saying? We're saying we follow a first century Jewish rabbi who claimed and demonstrated uh, himself as Messiah, not just of Israel, but Lord of the whole world. But it starts there, all right? Yeah. And that yeah. just means every interpretive lens has to be at least scrutinized. And there's some really wacky Jewish stuff out there where Christians will take Jewish thought forms. And, you know, um, our friend AJ um, has you know shown this where we'll just take Jewish thought forms and ram Christian understandings into them. Right. And that's what N.T. Wright has worked so hard to... Now, and again, you can, there are all sorts of detractors about his work, but minimally what he's done is um, give us insight into first century Jewish life that reframes so much of what Jesus, what we understood Jesus to be talking about. Yeah. So all that is to say, whatever the center Jesus looks like, he has to be Jewish. Yeah. Secondly, and this is all over the Gospels. Now, it's called something different in John. John calls it eternal life, but it's the same thing. Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. Mark and Luke call it the kingdom of God. And John calls it eternal life. And it's all describing the same reality. All right. The center point number two is that Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God slash heaven is at hand. Right. And, and just so you know, the kingdom of heaven doesn't mean the place you go when you, you die. Right. Heaven is a realm of authority for Jesus. So heaven is the place where God rules and his will is done. And so like if you were to say the White House issued a statement today, um, we know that the literal White House doesn't talk, but the White House stands for the authority of the executive branch of our government. Right. So heaven was a stand-in for the authority of God, right? So kingdom of heaven slash kingdom of God, eternal life, all of those are synonymous, just a minor point. But when you look at the preaching of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, you see nothing at all about individual salvation, going to heaven when you die, or accepting him in your heart by praying a prayer. Right. And I know, I know most of us know this, of course. But I want to spend some time talking about the kingdom of God because most of us read Paul or read Romans and go, oh, here's the Romans wrote about my individual salvation and forgiveness. We may all know that, but it's imprinted. Like We may know what you're saying, but unlearning what we grew up with is a whole different animal. Yes. Like weeding the roots of that stuff out is very difficult. That's right. Training myself that Jesus didn't speak in English 
and he didn't he didn't he wasn't thinking about america and he wasn't thinking about my individual soul that's taken me years but that was all of youth i mean that was all of church period was yeah the individual prayer this absolutely creating I, and a little, i've done a little it room for, yeah well every church we've been at has been like the altar call and say well, well yes what? like what is yes what is, yeah my house, my heart is like a house with many rooms. Let Jesus into all the rooms. Right. Absolutely. And, and, I, and of course, God in his grace and beauty can use any of that. But that isn't, well, I mean, if you just take the Gospels, if you just open up the book without, you don't even have to understand the words, but his central focus is the kingdom of God over and over and over. Yeah. So well, it's interesting let, too, because that reframes, it doesn't reframe, but it, it gives a lot of purpose to the, repent because the kingdom of god is at hand today yes what those words all mean in that sentence yes so let's talk about that stuff let's talk about the words let's talk about the words yes so um the word kingdom um that greek word um with a hebrew sort of uh referent uh, contains within it three interrelated concepts of course it does all right a king who forms a community to live under the king's reign, right? So king, community, and reign, R-E-I-G-N, yeah. <laughs> reign. Um, and and this, this actually begins, this understanding of kingdom begins with the first mention of royal language as applied to human beings in Genesis, right? When we, we, when we find out we're images of God, all that's royal language. And so much of, of particularly Genesis 2, but I think a bit in 1, there is temple imagery all over the place. Right. And so the idea is that God is creating in Eden a temple uh, that has image bearers, and those image bearers are royal. Those, that's, those, are royal like, those are royal words and vocations that are given to the man and to the woman. Which implies, if we are like God in that respect, that God himself is royal, mm. right? So embedded in the idea of king uh, already is the picture of a God who, um, you know, takes chaos and brings order and beauty and flourishing out of that chaos in one Sabbath cycle uh, of rest and work, and then invites us to do the same thing. Yeah. He's embedded the creation with all this potential to flourish, and image bearers are given the royal vocation of bringing forth that flourishing. So we are to we are invited as image bearers to rule over the fish, over the animals of the sky, and the, the um, animals of the sea, over the land. We're in partnership with God. Um, obviously, we turn the opportunity to rule into something for our own self-advantage, and that's what the whole Genesis 3 narrative is about, that our ruling um, becomes separated from um, the image. The yeah. image we were supposed to bear, that gets marred because we usurp that and use it to our own advantage. We've done such a good job, though. Oh, we have, absolutely. And so the, the Bible talks about, talks about this counter kingdom that has developed where, where human wills are done in partnership with powers and principalities. So what God does in response is, as a king, he forms a people, right? Israel, and invites them to live under his reign. Yeah. So we get the Exodus story where uh, Abraham's descendants are now you know, threatened by Pharaoh and enslaved by Egypt. 
God delivers them. The first time God is called king actually is the song in Exodus 15 that happens right after the parting of the Red Sea. Hmm. That yeah, so, so in Genesis, you have Yahweh the king creating a community to live under his reign. And what was the invitation to live under his reign? The garden is full of yeses, but there's one no. Right. Don't eat from the tree, right? And, and they did not. Israel gets formed. The king forms another community, Israel, and invites them to live under his reign. He takes them to a mountain and he gives them Torah. He gives them the law. He invites them to live as his people under his reign. How well do they do? Not well at all. In <laughs> fact, Samuel goes so far as to say, uh, speaking for God, you, Israel, have rejected God as king. Yeah. And, and then you just see the succession of awful, awful, awful until the nation is in Israel. The northern kingdom's destroyed, obliterated, never to be heard from again. The southern kingdom comes back, but they still are in exile because they're ruled, with the exception of a hundred year period of the Maccabees, they are ruled by, you know, other uh, tyrants. Yeah. And so the poets um, and the prophets of Israel kept alive the promise that God would return one day to Israel as king. And what they meant by that is that God would come as king over Israel and then restore the nations to the way God intended it to be. So they recognized that God wasn't, God was king positionally, absolutely. But in, in the midst of the world, they, we, no one was living faithfully under the reign of God. And so they were eager for God to come back um, to the world as king and, and, and to fix the mess that we made right. of the place. Right? So when Jesus starts preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, that, that is like that five minute tour, we could spend hours. I wrote a whole book on this called Death by Church, like way back in the day, um, about the kingdom of God. And, and, and the, the idea that when they heard this phrase or kingdom of heaven, the, what, what, what came into their imaginations when you're sitting in the Sabbath and hearing this rabbi talk about the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, is, is exactly the promises of the poets and the prophets, that God is returning to Israel, to Jerusalem, to the temple as king. And he comes bearing with him his kingdom, made yeah. up of a community of people who agree voluntarily to participate in his reign. And in so doing, <coughs> excuse me, um, bring about the flourishing again of the nations and creation itself. So when Jesus begins to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand, notice first, I mean, there's so many things to notice, but notice first the nature of the salvation. The nature of the salvation isn't us going to heaven. The nature of salvation is that heaven's coming here. Right. Right? And we see the whole Bible end that way in, at the end of Revelation, where literally the host and rule of heaven comes to reside on the earth. Um and so, so the movement isn't evacuating souls out of here, but it's the reign and presence of God coming nearer as it had been foreshadowed through the tabernacle and temple, but now fully embodied in Jesus of Nazareth and, and now available to all through uh, the universalizing of his Holy Spirit 
that kingdom comes draw and draws close. That's the first thing to notice is the direction of movement. The second thing to notice is um, the fact that this, the kingdom of God is a social political reality. Right. Anytime you use kingdom language, you're using political language. And it's social in the sense that it's a community. Jesus isn't saving individual souls, although a community is made up of individual souls, the community has an identity greater than the individuals that make up the community. And so the, the, the community then is the expression of and the working out of and the embodied reality of this kingdom message that Jesus has been bearing. It is most certainly not accepting Jesus in my heart as an individual. Right. There is, I don't even know what that means anymore to accept <laughs> Jesus in my heart. And I use that language all the time. It was the language we were handed. I'm not, I'm not bagging it, but I'm just saying when you read the message that the center preached, it was nothing to do with going to heaven when you die or praying a prayer and accepting Jesus in your heart. The kingdom of God was a social political reality that was disruptive and reconfigured all other social realities around itself. Yeah, it's so interesting. Where so we, how we ended up with that being the yes. predominant lane of traffic was the prayer the prayer thing it's just it's really wonder, has anybody traced that lineage of yes because like, i was talking to like my students yesterday with their papers they're writing that they can write a paper about like a old phrase that we use like you know blood is thicker than water or something mm. like that and mm. trace it back to its origins and look at how it's changed over it's like a game of telephone like where oh, that's it fun. meant something at the beginning, it means something totally different now. And yeah. you can do that with a lot of those phrases. But the game of telephone through history is always fascinating with how we got from that to yes. where we are now. Yes. And Jesus is like at the end of the telephone line being like, nope, that's not what I said. <laughs> right. So uh, again, this point number two about Jesus preaching the kingdom reinforces point number one. Right. Um, this is not a consumer message. This is not an individual message, although individuals receive it. This is about the formation of a new community yeah. around the person of Jesus. And that person, A, was Jewish, and B, preached <laughs> right. the formation of this. And, and sure, things happen when we die. Absolutely. But that was never the point. Jesus never used hell to scare anybody into his kingdom. He used it. He used Gehenna to warn religious leaders right. that they were going astray, which is an entirely different thing. So all that is to say, what often happens is that, is that people misread Paul and then go back into Jesus and take that misreading of Paul and, oh, and yeah. shoehorn the words and concepts of Jesus into that yep. when it's actually the reverse Right? Jesus started the thing by fulfilling um, and um, what else would we say? Um, being framed into the narrative of uh, Old Testament Israel. So he was fulfilling it. He, the, the, the law and the prophets were pointing to him, but he also, his entire being is framed around that narrative, right? right. Yeah. And that narrative, central to the narrative, was was the king. This idea called the kingdom of God. Now it was spoken of in terms of covenants, but those covenants were often uh, similar to the agreements the kings would make with vassals. I mean, there's just king all over the place, and it's so prevalent we don't even really recognize it as such. So the encompassing reality is the kingdom of God. Now the creation of the church 
the church has never been the point. The church has been a group of people living under the reign of Jesus who point to the kingdom of God and its reality here among us. Yeah. So the announcement of the kingdom is not the announcement of how great church is. Right. So anytime you hear a church talking about how great itself is, it's, you've got to malform Jesus at the center of that sucker. Right. So first, Jesus... Or the necessity of it. That seems to be a lot of the emails we get to is... I, yeah. I sat down with my pastor and we had a good relationship and I wanted to have a conversation about like some questions that I had and, or that I needed to take a time away and that they are, you know, instantly cut off communication because you're, yes, you're leaving away the church. Whatever. Yeah, totally. Yeah. The idea, one of the, one of the ideas I explored way back in that book was, uh, was taken from George Eldon Ladd, who was a professor at Fuller who talked about when, when, when Christians assume the church is the kingdom, here are all the bad things that happen. Interesting. So rejecting the church is rejecting Jesus in that view. Right. Stop, you know, I mean, it's, and it's all the mistakes we're familiar with and have made ourselves. Yeah. So the point of the church is to witness to the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom. The kingdom spans from creation to new creation. Yeah. The church does not. Right. This is another... Th- and, and the church falls into the exact same dynamic that would, was true of the first humans, a community formed by a king to live under his reign, Israel, the disciples, and now the church. We're all part yeah. of that same that, that same reality, yes, the same dynamic of a, a king creating a community to live under his reign. So, uh, and that community goes, like I said, from creation to new creation. So all the new creation stuff we've talked about encompasses is encompassing the kingdom and the kingdom encompasses all of human life even creation so salvation words aren't just salvation of individual souls there it's about you know paul will talk in romans 8 about the salvation of creation he will talk about us having been saved we are being saved and we will be saved right into three tenses right we'll talk about we'll talk about salvation extending uh to animal kingdoms in some strange way, and shalom being restored uh, even within animal kingdom. So there, you have all of this. It's it is this all-encompassing reality that <laughs> all the cat and dog lovers just were like, "Amen." <laughs> yes, right. And you have hints of this interestingly in the Old Testament. God judges a city and commands that the animals be left alone. And I mean, yeah. you just have this super interesting dynamic. All that is to say is the narrow slice of of some uh some forms of reformation theology that go we're a sinner god is holy god judges us we can't pay our debt jesus pays our debt uh we receive that debt we receive that payment and then we get a ticket to heaven yeah there are parts of that story that are absolutely true but that's not the message of jesus and you don't have to take my word for this just read literally just read take an afternoon and read through the gospels yeah and you'll you will look in vain for these things, right? But then you'll, then but then you'll out say, of context, but yeah, they mean something. Like well, you're no, saying, there's, there's some truth in there, but out of the context of everything else, yes, that begin it, it becomes it means something different. Yeah, yeah, which is scary. Yeah, it's like taking a two minute a two minute bit of Lord of the Rings uh, to try to explain the whole eight hour extravaganza. It's right. like. Okay, well, that little bit could be true to itself, right. but it's not true of the whole thing. There's no yeah. way it could carry the weight of the whole thing. Yeah, and that's what's so frustrating to so many of us is that, you know, we're seeing how flimsy 
the categories and cliches we were given turn out to be when faced right. with massive cultural upheaval, political uh, polarization, and then just the reality of suffering in the midst of God's people, right? Yes, Caused absolutely. by yep. the spiritual institutions oftentimes. So what we've got is we have a Jewish Messiah who proclaims the kingdom of God, and that's what Messiah turns out to be. But, and this is, this is the third point, is that Jesus's Messiahship uh, was proclaimed and embodied as something called the Great Reversal. That Jesus comes as a Messiah, but as a Messiah nobody expected. And this is all over the Gospels, right? He comes as a cruciform Messiah, not as a Davidic royal king, although he is that. He doesn't come with that militancy that was expected of the Messiah coming to kick out Rome. He comes as a suffering servant. And so what you have is Jesus embodying uh, the great reversal. And so like in the book of Matthew, Jesus preaches the kingdom. And then there are three chapters of what that preaching was. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And then there are two chapters. If you hear, if you're listening, that Seth barfing in the background. <laughs> Poor kid. Um, you have three chapters of teaching the kingdom, but then it says that Jesus not only taught and proclaimed the kingdom, but he healed people and delivered people from demons. And that that was as much as kingdom ministry as the proclamation, right? Jesus was, the kingdom isn't a message, it's a reality. And that reality began to insert itself in the workings of Jesus towards other people. And so you have like the leper, the centurion, two demon-possessed men, two demon-possessed men, Peter's mother-in-law, a paralyzed man, a dead girl, a bleeding woman, two blind men that all encounter in Matthew, uh, immediately after the Sermon on the Mount, that all encounter Jesus and are healed. And, and again, the, 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 the big part of, of this to note is that it, it was the reversal of expectation that Jesus was proclaiming and embodying the good news to people who, who the religious elite didn't think were worthy of it. Um, Jesus, of course, proclaims that greatness in the kingdom looks nothing like the leadership of the Gentiles right. or the oppression of, of some of the Jewish religious leaders. Right? He's, he's saying things like the first will be last, the last will be first. If you want to save your life, you must lose it. If you want to be great, you have, have to be the servant of all. I mean, that's the great reversal. Everything's upside down in his kingdom. In his kingdom where it's natural to, to have enemies, Jesus talks about forgiving them, where it's natural to, uh, to want to blast those who persecute you here. He says you must pray. So it's not just that he's Jewish. He came as a Jewish Messiah preaching the Jewish kingdom of God, but that kingdom of God was disruptive in that it upset and overturned all expectation. That people who you thought were insiders, Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, turn out to be the ones who struggle most. And the ones you were sure were outsiders, prostitutes, tax collectors, day laborers, the demon possessed, those are the ones that come flooding in. Any clarity at the center has to include that dynamic as the kingdom comes. Yeah. Right? Even his birth story, the announcement to the shepherds, I mean, all of that stuff is wrapped in to, to what's called the great reversal. Even Jesus' teaching on judgment includes that stuff. So the first three steps are all related. Jesus is Jewish. He comes as a Jewish Messiah preaching the Jewish kingdom of God. But the Messiah, there's a, there's a surprise to this. 
that Jesus is going to win by losing. He's going to conquer by suffering. Like that whole that whole inversion, like like shades all of his ministry. And this is where Paul is the the best channeler of Jesus because Paul spends so much time fleshing out what does a cruciform life look like. Right. Right. Philippians two is his best known passage, but it's all over everywhere. Right, his preaching and weakness in the Corinthian church. I mean, it's it's he framed his whole ministry around this idea of the upside downness of Jesus and his message. So, because the kingdom of God is disruptive, there is conflict, and we have to recognize the conflict. So, um, who is this Jesus at the center? First, he's Jewish. Second, he comes bearing the message about the kingdom of God and invites people to repent. Jesus was not fuzzy on this. Um, He was very clear about what the Messiah was and what the kingdom is and what it meant for people to repent and embrace it. Yeah, which is huge. Which is huge. But all of that was done in the context of its offering grace to the humble and then he would resist the proud and this is something that god does all throughout the scriptures right those that are righteous in their own eyes have the hardest people accepting um the messiahship of jesus yeah the upside remember, down nature of it is opposite of that posture yes i had a conversation man maybe 15 years ago now with um uh, i was in california at the time he was um, an Orthodox Jewish man. They had full full body suits in the pool, in the community pool. Um, they had the curly, you know, un, uncut hair uh, from the sideburns, and they're speaking Hebrew. So I felt pretty confident <laughs> in saying, "Hmm, I think they're Jewish." Yeah. So I come up and I don't introduce myself as anybody, but I'm just like, I have can I ask you a question about, and I asked him some obscure question about something I was reading in the Talmud or something. And he's just sort of like, okay, well, that's weird. I usually don't get those kind of questions at the pool in Irvine. <laughs> um, and so we get up, we, we talk and talk and talk for hours and we get around to the subject of Jesus. And I, and I'm like, you know, I've, I've, I've heard many different reasons why, uh, Jesus isn't considered the Messiah. I said, "How would you answer? How would you answer that question?" And we had established enough rapport that I wasn't yeah. sitting in judgment over this person. Whatever, I was genuinely like really curious. And his answers always stuck with me. He said, "The Messiah was supposed to go to the great of Israel. Jesus went to the poor of mm. Israel. That was his reason why Jesus was not the Messiah." Now, and I've heard other ones, and and there are. I mean, I can understand why. Yeah. In Jewish context, you would have problems with Jesus. Um, but I thought that was so interesting it, that that was literally a source of conflict. So point number four in our seven point, who is Jesus at the center, is that Jesus and his kingdom message brought all sorts of conflict. <laughs> and and it's like, no, duh. <laughs> but if our message, if our, if our Jesus never, never produces anything other than oh yeah this is fantastic then we've missed it yeah we had a great Be- email today or this morning on that was the talking about the conflict that that brought with the family and then the and then the conflict that it brought with um like 
the more progressive friend group or whatever and it was like right. the disparaging yep. and just being like i don't fit like everything right. that i'm learning doesn't it isolates me from my family's lineage of faith understanding and it totally. isolates me from you know the people who are, who are more progressive in their mindset towards community and whatever which is interesting so, so there's a that is so interesting and it hints at the idea that there there's a good conflict and a bad conflict yes i will you know the jerks for jesus crowd will point to conflict like, oh yeah, anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. And like view persecution as evidence they're living right. a Jesus kind of life. Yep. So this point can be totally, oh, totally. misused. There's, there's such a, an interesting martyr syndrome yep. uh, within, and I suffer from it all the time. Um, yes. But like if you're, not, if you're not creating, if you're not instigating conflict that causes you to be the sacrifice or to seem sacrificial uh it's not real and it's right. such an interesting posture it is yes absolutely and so so demonic um <laughs> i mean it really is it really is you can only do the work of jesus jesus's way there's no other option well that's so, what's interesting about your point two um, that repent because the kingdom of God is near. So I keep thinking about that through all the different things that you're saying because the invitation to, I still think we, we struggle with the idea of what repentance is yeah. and what the kingdom of God and what Jesus illustrates through the Sermon on the Mount, the invitation to repentance isn't a momentary invitation. No. He gives you a, he then proceeds to give you a, an entire roadmap of what repentance looks like. Like, hey, all right, here we go, guys. Yeah. Everybody log in. This is what we're doing. This is what this looks like. And so it's like, it's it, or at least for me, the definitions of those words that I grew up with yes. and what Jesus is actually inviting into with that, I, with that term repentance is dramatically different. Absolutely. Repentance, I always thought was feeling bad because you sinned. Yeah, it was like a and trying and, and trying to do harder, trying to do better. Yes. Trying harder to do better. Yep. And, um, and that's where, you know, I, you're right in saying that that's not what Jesus meant there. Right. Like repent is like re-examine your whole way of living in light of the fact that the kingdom's available to you differently. Yeah. And then he's like, here's what this looks like. Right. Exactly. You know, and for some, it was as simple as follow me. Right. Just walk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let, let's just, let's take a road trip. And, and, and for others, it was obviously follow my teaching, um, but it, in all ways, it held him as an authority. Mm -hmm. That's where repentance started, was the surrendering of my, my desire to call my shots. It's, it's exactly, it's the, it's the reversal of the Garden of Eden. It's me putting down the fruit of the tree and instead embracing, right. embracing the, the way and person of Jesus um as good and wise you yeah, know what i mean that's an interesting image to to turn away from the tree and look at the orchard yes you know that's in the garden yes eddie vetter should write a song about that <laughs> those are metaphors he likes so so i mean and then you talk about conflict first i mean and you can't get around this you cannot get around this but there was there was some sort of power and principality thing 
going on all over the ministry of Jesus. You cannot, I mean, and it's part of the Jewish thing. Um, but for Jesus, when the kingdom of God comes in power, it displaces another kingdom. Yeah. It's not like we're all just sitting here as a bunch of neutral people. Right. You know, in Jesus's thought world, uh, we've all been enslaved and have to be invited out of that enslavement. Or Paul will say the kingdom of you know darkness, and we are now saved into the kingdom of light. Or Jesus will call this Satan, the Archon, or Prince of this world. And man, I mean, in the book of Mark, I just counted uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different references to demons and the demonic within the first six chapters. Yeah. So, uh, and, and that shows that the problem that Jesus has come to solve isn't just individual sin. There is something bigger going on than just the fact that, you know, I lusted when I was four and everyday sense or whatever. I mean, however we frame that category, and that goes back to repentance. Repentance isn't just saying I've become religious. I got religion, right? right? Repentance is the, the turning over of my entire life. Progressively, right? I mean, it starts with follow me, but then you see that these guys literally follow Jesus and misunderstood it all the time. Right. So, of course, we're going to misunderstand it. Yeah. Totally. But it's best when somebody says, who are we talking about? When we talk about the center, the center is a person, not a set of ideas. Right. So we encounter that person um, through the written records called the Gospels, and not just there, obviously outside of there as well. But when we, when I look at the Gospels, and people will disagree, I mean, that's the joy of this, right? Is Man, there are all sorts of ways to define the, the center, and that's part of the problem. Hmm. But these seem to be preeminent. That he was Jewish, he comes bearing his kingdom. That kingdom is is a, of a great reversal, of greatness and social categories, and that and therefore it creates conflict. It yeah. creates conflict with the powers. It creates conflict with the Pharisees over fasting, exorcism, Sabbath. I mean, at one point they accuse him of being in league right. with uh, Beelzebub, the prince of demons. That's why he was so great at casting them out. They fuss at him about hand washing. Um, uh, he uh, he gets into trouble with with Herod. Um, Herod pursues him all throughout his ministry. He gets into trouble with his family, right? His family at one point, and Mark thinks he's out of his mind. Yeah. And in John, we we know that Jesus's own brothers didn't believe in him. Um, Jesus gets rejected by his hometown. He preaches a sermon and they try to kill him. Right. He condemns the towns of Tyre and Sidon, which were, uh, no, he doesn't condemn those towns. He actually says it'll be more bearable for those Gentile towns than the towns that he's been preaching the gospel in. So his message created conflict all over the place. This is not Jesus being a jerk conflict. This is the conflict created when the center set is clear, when the center is clear and people go, oh, if that's what you mean by Messiah, I'm not interested. Right? That was Peter. If that's how the kingdom right, comes, totally. I'm yeah. not interested. Yep. It's in interesting. I was, I was in the shower yesterday. I was thinking about um, some, something to do with like, I just like identifying terms. But I was thinking about the what would Jesus do bracelets. And oh, what yeah. What a terrible way to think. But looking at what, what would Jesus say or what did Jesus say? And then taking all this context into that is such a better way of like 
posturing or thinking about all that because i think because i'm what i'm saying is because i think we will often do we take there is some like weird piety in uh or pride in like saying i'm doing i'm gonna do what jesus did like the people always talk about like the turning over the tables like i'm i'm Mm -hmm. i'm like jesus i'm gonna get pissed and i'm gonna go in there i'm gonna wreck house including like salvific language like i'm gonna I'm going to save these people or like I'm the, you know, you're the, you're the only Jesus people are ever going to meet or see or whatever. And it just, does that make sense? Like we try, yep. we, we try to inhabit the role of Jesus, right. but I don't know that that's what we were called to do. And so the, what would Jesus do movement was like, how, how, how do I embody Jesus in this community? But it, it seems to come from more of a authoritative position than a servant position if that makes sense absolutely absolutely because it just pushes the whole question back so yes. yeah tim i think that's really insightful because I, it, on the one hand it was a good corrective um to what i was always taught which is you follow jesus by having correct believings about jesus right and here was somebody saying hey no we actually are invited to do the things that jesus did jesus himself said that um but you're right it it, it seemed to come from um a separation from all of those um acts separated being separated from the narrative framework and the story that that those acts inhabited right you know what i mean like you can't separate theology from the practice of jesus from the person of jesus or you get this weird sort of mess and so i'm trying to encapsulate no there are correct beliefs about jesus absolutely and those are embedded in the story he tells about exactly. the kingdom of God. So all that is to say, um, he's Jewish. He comes bearing <laughs> a kingdom as a king, and he, yep. he defines that in Jewish terms. The surprise, which was something kind of hidden in plain sight all along, is that it's an upside-down kingdom. Right. Turns and out be- we didn't have a good handle on it. That nope. was the big surprise. That was the big surprise, yes. And, and not surprisingly, it creates the good kind of conflict. Right. Because it displaces the power games, the exploitative practices of all of us, not just oppressive religion, but all of us. So it's a threat. It's a disruptive threat. And and again, if you're preaching is something that only is about life enhancement. Hi, guys, how do we get through a pandemic together? Right. You know, or how, I mean, there's just so much of that sort of therapeutic, let's just, let's just, let's just be better, you know? And you're like, no, that's not the, that's not the gospel that we're talking about here and here i'm with my my uh fundy preachers man i i think that we rob the gospel of its power when we just make it about self-improvement being a better person um overcoming my giants you know no for sure you what's know? interesting about the pandemic is like the sermon on the mount is no less or more applicable during that time period as it is during any time period like the way in which you live and posture yourself based on that would have been just a perfect way to navigate the pandemic in your community. Yes. Yes, exactly right. Uh, three more, Timothy. Can't believe. Yeah. Yep. One. Uh, well, no, I mean, this is actually five, but the first <laughs> of the three remaining. Sorry. The, first of the last three is five. Yes. Yes. That's like numbering Star Wars episodes. <laughs> um, <laughs> um I was struck again by how often Jesus talks about the Father and how he uh, reveals the Father. 
And, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to those whom the Son reveals him. Like, that is a pretty strong emphasis in the center, meaning that what Jesus does is he reframes our concept of God. We don't start with an abstract concept of God and throw Jesus into that. What the Gospels do, what Jesus himself was aware of, and then what Paul and the writers of the epistles do is they they take the idea of God now and wrap it around Jesus. It's not taking Jesus and wrapping it around God. It's taking God and wrapping it around Jesus. And I think that's so important when we come to how we understand the Bible, how we understand progressive revelation, how we understand um, what it is that Jesus is doing. So many of the callbacks um, are Yahweh callbacks, you know, mm-hmm. I, and here's Jesus having authority over a storm, which is something that Yahweh did in chapter one of the whole book. Um, you know what I mean? So, so there are the, all of these, like, it's not just Jesus is the king arbitrarily. It's that Jesus is Torah with flesh on. Jesus is Israel with flesh on. He's the Adam. He's the first fully human person, right? He's all of this sort of wrapped up into one. And as part of that package, he reveals the heart of the Father to us, definitively and finally. Can you so define that is, the progressive revelation in context of this? Yeah, progressive revelation doesn't mean that Jesus is a leftist. Progressive revelation means <laughs> that parts of the story become more clear as the story goes on. Yeah. So, so in the very beginning, and the Bible wasn't the the Bible that we have isn't written linearly. In other words, Job is the earliest book of the Bible. Uh, most likely. But, you know, we start with Genesis because it records prehistory. So the Bible wasn't written as it's laid out. There are loads of, you know, um, things that were early and later and compiled and all of those sorts of things. Um, And and so so one of the great, you know, one of the great gifts of Jesus is uh, the, the New Testament writers will look back at him and say, ah, and this is Hebrews, God spoke in various ways through various people at various times, speaking of the old covenant. But now he has spoken through his son, the exact representation of his being. In other words, the character of God has always been there, but it's now becoming clearer and clearer through the person of Jesus as Yahweh sort of has clothes on. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think it's interesting because the I, when you're saying that, when you mentioned it the first time, I was thinking about how much God's playing the long game. Yes. And that's frustrating with everybody, but how much uh, Satan played the short game, like how the temptations were like, hey, right here and now, this is the best way to, you know, you could do this. You want this, you want this or whatever. And it's an interesting, when you think about the posture of the kingdom of God and what repentance looks like in joining into a living out of um, teachings and ideas versus this in the moment temptation uh, that just shows you how much of faith is patience, um, which is terrible for a person like me that has, you know, intense anxiety and wants to see or, or feels the need to see results or answers or relief in the, you know, the, that exact moment. It, uh, it's a it's a really interesting disparity between the two. This long game versus the short jab 
sharp yeah. game that yes. uh, seems to come in the temptation. Absolutely. And, and that was obviously one of the temptations of the enemy to Jesus yeah. was to just short circuit yeah, let's just pull the long in. suffering slow game. Yeah. All right. So um, importantly, Jesus revealed the father. Um, and then, and then number six, uh, the kingdom of Jesus is cross-shaped. That's implied in the great reversal, but I wanted to make it explicit because then yeah. Christian action is cross-shaped. The center is cross-shaped. And cross-shaped means I am laying down my rights and entitlements in order, and we've talked about this multiple times on the podcast, uh, in order to bless and serve and pour myself out for the sake of others. Now, I succeeded that maybe 10% of the time. Right. But... but only cross-shaped things can properly be called Christian, right? right. Loving those who love you, that's not Christian. Um, uh, forgiving those who forgive you, that's not Christian. Loving enemies, there's, there it is, that's Jesus-like, yeah. right? Forgiving those people who've not tried to reconcile with you, that's Jesus-like. So, so whatever the center turns out to be, it turns out to be a person. That person is Jewish, bearing a kingdom that that turns everything upside down as a result creates conflict um but most importantly it remains cruciform to this day even as paul works it out through these kingdom communities called churches yeah and then lastly um and you you just can't get away from this one jesus comes um in judgment and um and uh, I mean, I was, I made a list of so many, and, and often we, we hear judgment and we think immediately of, oh yeah, it's heaven or hell. Right. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think his parables had to do with the judgment that was coming on Israel. And so like in Matthew, you've got parable of workers in the vineyard of the, the fig tree, the tenants, wedding banquet. Um, he talks about the destruction of the temple, like literally parable, 10 versions, talents, sheep and goats. Um, and the idea, of course, is that Jesus comes bearing judgment. And he is warning, he is warning people who are leading Israel astray. And he comes warning, I think today, that at the center, uh, it isn't just this nice, warm, fuzzy, hey dudes, whatever you guys think is cool is fine with me. Like there is an edge. That edge is gracious. It resists the proud and is gracious to the humble. But when in resisting the proud, there is judgment there. And I don't think it's the judgment we think of, but right. Jesus certainly comes not, you know, branding a whip and uh, with a sword coming out of his mouth, like the metaphors <laughs> in Revelation or whatever. Yeah. But he certainly comes having an edge because the when the kingship of god becomes clear that displaces all other rule and authority including ours <laughs> thankfully yeah and so jesus isn't apathetic is the point he's not just hey guys it's cool that you read your bible and pray every day um and i'm fine if, as long as you do those two things i'm totally cool right like no there is a way to live and there is some sort of accountability for living that way yeah. Our accountability that Jesus actually cares about what happens. Our life matters. Our choices matter, right? The affections of our heart matters. Our intents, our motivations, all of that is important. Yeah. Now, hallelujah, that Jesus rescues us out of all of that so that that no longer defines us. But then the invitation is to live into the new identity. And the sum total of that whole way of human life, evidently we're held in some way accountable for. 
Yeah. Well, and a lot of, and we've talked about some of the, some of the ideas of immediate judgment too, like, yes. And what that looks like, you know, I was talking to somebody about, um, affairs the other day and just the immediate yes judgment ramifications that come through from that action. And then that in some ways broadens the understanding of grace and mercy yes. often as well. Um, not always, but yeah. can. And so it's, it's, yeah. And, and but you're right because this is the the really the most important thing to say un, un, under this is that both the kingdom and the judgment of its coming are now and not yet right that there is that there is um, clear teaching in the gospels that Jesus is announcing the current presence of the kingdom and some sort of future fulfillment yeah that's it's the somehow. Uh, the now part, I'm. I feel like I'm getting more concretely, uh, a more concrete understanding of, and understanding what Jesus was getting at and why, and that stuff's becoming clear to me. But the powers and principalities, or the not yet, or the supernatural element of all of this, yeah, is like it's out there for me currently. Yep, of course. Oh, me too. But we it talk about so that all the time. To link together. You know, it's the story, difficult. It, absolutely difficult. And that's why it has to be said again and again, the center is a person and a relational connection to a person through a community. Right. And um, it's participating in a social reality um, that is, is itself called the body of Christ, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so, and I know, my goodness, you could argue for 800 more things to be a part of the center, or maybe that I've included too many things <laughs> or, um, or I didn't include the right things. Fantastic. Would we love to hear your about thoughts. Anything. Yes. But if I, so as I try to clarify the center for the body of believers, I'm responsible for teaching. Um, these are the contours. Um, we're absolutely going to continue to come back to these seven things mm. and recognize that you know part of um part of following jesus is resistance and is conflict but not by being a jerk simply because as the center gets clarified the people that want to play rugby go elsewhere and it's right. fine it's okay jesus invited people he never manipulated them never compelled them he never bribed them he never guilted them he just simply invited, and that's the posture of the kingdom, right? So, so what this does is this sets up, if this is the center or one version of it, this sets up all sorts of relational dynamics that we're going to explore next episode to talk about, okay, so what's a healthy church look and feel like? What sort of relational dynamics are there? And they will not be shocking anybody, and then we're off onto some new thing. Well, we will do a midweek episode. We couldn't get to it this week. We had... All sorts of crazy things going on in our shenanigans. family. We had shenanigans. We had two bomb threats at our school. Um, it was. It turned out. I think the rumor is uh, that a kid who had a drug test um, was 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 going to fail his drug test, and you know, called it in. <laughs> I've I seen that know. episode before. Oh, oh, really? Nice. <laughs> it's what's interesting is when you said Jesus doesn't bribe, and my brain was kind of like, isn't that kind of the salvific? story that we absolutely with yep. yeah it's so so the invitation versus bribery is a yeah 
that dynamic is oh he, but it, and notice he never sold people on the kingdom yeah he never just said hey guys he he i mean just go through all the parables where he talks about it it's slow it, it's it's wonderful like you'll you'll exchange everything there's joy there yeah. right like you'd be a fool not to sell everything and, and buy this right um so no doubt about that but but he's also constantly having to reorient people around the nature of the kingdom because they just had so many definitions of it just like we do and that's yep. where the deconstruction crowd myself at the top of the list needs to be reminded that none of this is new none of it mm-hmm. now it's it feels new because of social media and it feels new for those of us Xers because we were raised in a incredibly optimistic period of time where literally the world was our oyster and Jesus is coming back and it's going to be amazing. Uh, and that's been demolished. Um, but there's a sense in which even in Jesus's day, people were making these same mistakes, right? Yeah, the, the, totally. great, the, the great threat um to the jesus movement was zionism now it wasn't called that back then but it was the idea from the zealots and and they provoke war 40 years from jesus that that you had to take up arms to win a culture war yeah there you go and um and so jesus comes and he's disappointing those people he's disappointing the people that were very righteous in their own eyes he's disappointing the collaborationists with the romans who wanted just to get close to power didn't matter how much of our religion we had to sacrifice to get there if we were close to power that was good and we see evangelicals making all the same mistakes yep right i've made them so this isn't this isn't brand new ground if you read the gospels is to see how jesus encounters the different answers to the problem of hey why why does israel suck right now right <laughs> why the romans are in power yeah. so many are poor right so many are sinners um the temple's corrupt i mean what are we going to do right yeah. and you just hear the same litany today politics is corrupt everyone's divided into different tribal camps some say you know some will do anything to get close to power and just and use religious language to justify it some advocate armed revolt whether that's uh, with guns or uh, actions of intimidation, yeah. um, you know, and, and to watch Jesus navigate that yeah. is so enlightening. He never tried to win that culture war. Yeah, you know, he he invited a community to live under his reign as king. That's yeah. what he did. So the the job of the church is to be a community that lives under the good reign of Jesus. That's yeah. it. It's not to convert the world. It's not to legislate morality. It's And I know people disagree with this. I know, I know, I know. This is my Anabaptist theology coming through. But the job of the church is to simply be the church and to witness the reality yeah, of the kingdom. You just can't make money off that. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure some we could. I don't know. I, can't, I We were talking about, like we were texting yesterday the other day. It's like, I was just looking at all the different models and the things that will come through Instagram or whatever. And it's, it's it, so much of it is a business and a commodity. And when you look at what it looks like to just exist in the community and live life together and try to pursue these things that Jesus was talking about in the kingdom here and now, there's a lot, not a lot to market to make money <laughs> off of that. Oh no, so well, it's, there's, it's, there's it's absolutely tough. no marketing. You have Jesus telling people don't say anything to anybody exactly. peter exactly peter acknowledges he's the messiah and immediately he says don't tell yep. anyone so it's because you, you don't you understand it it just shows the how much capitalism is involved in 
church or Christianity yeah. or whatever you want to call it. But exactly that verse came to mind too. I was just like, he's like, ah, shh, no, no, no. Like just, <laughs> just do this. Like, yes, yes, that's it. And, and so I think, um, what this does, what this little list of seven does for me is it, it helps me choose what parts to emphasize and what parts yeah. that aren't as important. It helps me decide what's of primary and what's of secondary significance. It helps me arbitrate between different community practices, which form people this direction and which don't um, as we gather as community. But it also keeps me perpetually curious because embedded in all of this is the recognition that I don't know. Like, yeah, he's Jewish. Okay, I got that. But there's so much I'm still learning about, you know, the kingdom. I mean, it's this all-encompassing reality that frames so much of the Old Testament story. And I'm just learning about it. Like the invitation of Jesus was to be a student. Yes. And, and so the most important posture uh, all this does to me is it just realizes, in, in Gombas's terms, boy, that's a big natural park we get to explore. Exactly. Yep. Totally. You know what I mean? Not a not a creed, although those are fine. Um, not not a set of disembodied um, social media posts, but rather, ooh, this is a national park, and I have all sorts of wanderers around, and I have a bunch. Yep. I have I have about two hundred people, three hundred people in my tour group. And, um, you know, some of them are absolutely wacky. Some of them are amazing. <laughs> and, but we're going to be a tour group throughout this whole nat- national park exploring yep. this thing. I was just in Yosemite and I was thinking about that analogy while I was there and oh. popped into the gift shop just to try to like put some tangible visuals onto it. Just, you know, to really kind of inhabit that metaphor. And man, when you walk out and that Yosemite Valley opens up, you're just like, oh my you're goodness. floored that you can't, there's nothing you can say about it, nothing you can do. Like you just have to be in it and experience it and wander with the weirdos, which I like that. Absolutely. You're in a tour group. Yeah. You didn't get to choose your tour group. You can try, but they're all the, the tour groups are everywhere. Right. So anyway, all right. Friends, uh, I speak much more confidently than I feel. So I, I know I get fired up about, you know, hey, this is really important. Hey, right. so is this. This is really important too. And oh, don't forget this. And I and I, I realize I do that, but I recognize full well that there's so many ways you could slice this tomato. Um, and, you know, you could either do a Hybert or a Hebert, you know, on this thing. And either way. One way is going to sound like chalkboard. One way is going to sound beautiful to, to citizens of that country of origin. Regardless, right. however, um, I just, I, I want to allow all sorts of, not that anyone needs my permission, but allow all sorts of room for, okay, well, how's this play out? Or here's what I think, or, you know, any input. Yes, I think that's actually very important that people feel comfortable with because I think we grew up outside of that. So having right. all the stuff that you just shared and having the invitation, that's okay to question yeah. that. The only thing we had from that growing up wasn't from church. It was from reading Rainbow. Remember you always oh, yeah. present a book and they'd be like, don't take my word for it. And have yeah. the kids talk about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and some of these could easily become new boundaries. Absolutely. Or we could practice and use them in bounded ways. I mean, so, you know, the, the dangers are ever present. 
And the last thing I'd want to say is if someone disagrees that they're not following Jesus at the center, but since we got asked the question about the Jesus at the center, hey, I think it's I, I, it was very good for me this week to s- inhabit the Gospels yeah. from like a 30,000-foot overview and say, what, what do I read about more than anything else? Yeah. Not just obscure, but like what, what are the pages filled with? Right. And um, anyway, it was fun. It was very faith-enriching for me, and, and it caused me to be perpetually curious. So, friends, we'd love to hear what you think. Um, if you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can go to our website, voxologypodcast.com. You can join us on patreon.com, type in Voxology Podcast or tithe.ly. Um, and uh, we're super grateful for all of that. Please find us on the socials and, um, and give us a, a like, a rate, a subscription, a something so that the algorithms, our overlords, our robot overlords will continue to help people discover this. Many thanks, friends. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give us peace. Till next time. Thanks. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials, facebook.com backslash voxology podcast and on Instagram at voxology. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for walking the long road with us.